Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Dr. David Sinclair is a professor in the Department of Genetics and co-director of the Paul F. Klen Center for the Biology of Aging at Harvard Medical School, where he and his colleagues study sirtuins, protein-modifying enzymes that respond to changing NAD levels and to caloric restriction, as well as chromatin, energy metabolism, mitochondria, learning and memory, neurodegeneration, cancer, and cellular reprogramming. He is also the inventor on 35 patents, and in 2014, he was on Time's list of the 100 most influential people in the world, and listed as Time's top 50 in healthcare in 2018. In his latest must-read book, Lifespan, Sinclair suggested that aging is a disease. Yes, and it's one that is potentially treatable. In this show, we talk about everything from the latest studies on anti-aging, yes, I said anti-aging, to optimal lifestyle and nutrition choices for longevity, to boosting NAD. Sinclair says we could argue that NAD is the most important molecule in the body, and without it, we're literally dead. We here at MBG are particularly excited about the developing science around NAD and the boosters available to all of us. It is an honor to have David on the show today. David, welcome. Thanks for having me on. It is an honor to have you here. I'm a big fan of your work, and congrats on the new book, Lifespan. So what you say in the book is so, there are so many interesting things. I'm going to start at the highest level where you say aging is a disease. Let's talk about that. Well, so aging as a disease is a shock to most people because we thought we knew what aging was. But what I'm saying is that we should look at aging as we do a disease. Uh, definition of, of a disease is that over time you lose function, you become decrepit, disabled, and eventually, if it's a bad disease, you die from it. That sounds a lot like aging, right? And if you go to the medical dictionary, the only difference between aging and a disease is that a disease affects less than half the population. So if aging affected 51%, uh, we, as we do, we separate it from disease. If it was affecting 49%, we'd be studying this and putting billions and billions of dollars into trying, trying to solve it. And that 50% cutoff is completely arbitrary. The problem with having aging separate from disease, and remember, it's just a, a word definition. It's not a biological difference. They're actually totally intertwined. Aging is the major cause of all major diseases on the planet. But we put it into a separate category, uh, partly because of history, because we didn't understand it. It seemed natural, whereas cancer was unnatural. Um, but it's all natural. And we've always fought against diseases like cancer and heart disease. We didn't know how to until recently. Same with aging. But we're at a point now, like we were with cancer 30, 40 years ago, we now understand, we think, what drives the process. And we're having some really great success in the lab and in some clinical trials with people of being able to at least slow down and some evidence that even reversing aging is possible. And when you can do that, then I think we should start taking aging as a disease very seriously. So in your opinion, we're, we're at that point where we can slow aging and it is reversible. 
Uh, in mice, it's pretty easy. It was it was shockingly <laughs> easy, but we're not mice, so we have a bit of work to do. But there are uh, a number of studies that are already published that you can reverse aspects of aging in people, boost their immune system, improve endurance, uh, improve metabolism. In fact, there's a drug on the market uh, called metformin, which we may delve into. A yes. Bit, uh, which is our, our best guess is it's a longevity molecule. It actually slows down aging because diabetics who take this molecule are relatively resistant to heart disease and cancer and Alzheimer's and frailty, even though they have diabetes. And we think that if healthy people or pre-diabetics take this drug, they'll also be protected. Um, but yeah, it's here right now. That's what I'm trying to say in my book, and that there are things we can do with our lives today, and there are things that are coming down the pike just a few years from now. So let's stay on metformin for a minute. I think it's so interesting because essentially it's refined herbal medicine. It's French lilac, but it's a drug. And so let's just talk about what it is. And you mentioned diabetes. That's where it originated from. But there was a recent study where it was a combination of metformin, DHEA, and growth hormone that took, it was a small study, I think it was like nine or 10 people, but took two and a half years off of the biological clock. So let's just talk about that for a second. Right. Well, until recently, we didn't really know how to measure aging. Telomeres are a bit wishy-washy. They move around. It's not super accurate. These are the ends of chromosomes that shorten. Um, There are blood biomarkers, which a company that I work with called Inside Tracker measures. So I've been estimating my biological age using five different measures in blood. But recently, we've developed what's called the epigenetic clock. And Stephen Horvath, a colleague of mine, um, gives his name to it. So why is that important? Now we can take a DNA sample from any part of your body. Typically, it's blood because that's easy to get. And I can I could tell you how old you are exactly within a few percent biologically. I don't have to see you. I don't need to measure you. I don't need to see your birthday candles. And then I can predict accurately when you're going to die as well. Wow. So where can I do this test? <laughs> yeah. show up at your lab? It's right on the cusp of being commercially available. Um, I'm working on something with Steve. There are a couple of others. It's almost ready for prime time. So th- this time next year, you should be able to fairly cheaply figure out when you're going to die. Have you figured out your bio? I'm sure. What's your biological age? Well, I haven't done this test yet. Okay. Um, I want to. I've been working on mice uh, and getting that to work. Also, we're working really hard to bring the test down from 300 bucks down to three three bucks. So that, that'll really change things. But yeah, your, your point is what age am I? Well, the best estimate came from that inside tracker company. And uh, it's an independent thing, even though I'm a small time investor. They didn't know it was my blood, right? So but they, I was actually at 58, aged 58 biologically when I was 48, which freaked me out. Uh, I didn't want to be 10 years older. Uh, I wasn't exercising. I wasn't eating the right things. I wasn't taking NMN, which I do now. We'll talk about that later. Um, and I wasn't on metformin. So I added a few things stepwise and had a look at what happened to my body. And pretty quickly, it was in less than six months, as I added things and got better and better, uh, looking at my blood biochemistry, the algorithm independently determined that I went down to 31.4. Wow. Now, people look at me and say, David, that's not science. And it's true. That's not a clinical trial. Uh, But if nothing else, I improved a lot of the parameters that go up with age, and I brought them back down. And that's 
if nothing more, it makes me feel good about myself and it was motivational. And what I've learned from that experience is that the more you can know about your body, like a dashboard, the better you can respond. Uh, if you go for a run or if you change your life, if you eat a certain new diet, you exercise too much or too little, how do you know it's working? You have to measure things to, to really be able to, A, know if it's working, and B, just be cognizant of, of what you're putting in your mouth and what you're doing with your body. So you think we're a year away from this? That's uh, so, so the clock, yeah, getting back to the clock, yeah, it's it's really interesting. You take the, the DNA out and you just treat it with a chemical and run it through a sequencing machine and determine the DNA code. And what we're measuring is not just the code, but there are chemicals that bind to the letter C. You know how DNA is A, C, T, G. On the Cs, we get what's called a methyl chemical that sticks there, uh, binds to it, and doesn't come off. And they accumulate, essentially, in different places as we get older. And we can read that sequence. And that pattern is very predictable between people. In fact, the same pattern can predict the age of a dog as well. So there's this common what we call epigenetic basis for the aging clock between all mammals and seemingly all the way back to jellyfish. So I want to talk about the, the what we can do in terms of lifestyle because metformin is a drug. We're, talking, we're going to talk about NAD and NMN and NAR and all the other things we can kind of do there. But for, for many listening, they're going to say, okay, I have this information maybe a year from now or today I want to do... There, there are things I can do in terms of lifestyle. Yeah. In your opinion, as I always, our friend Rich Roll says, you, can, uh, you know, health begins on the plate for a lot of people. So, if we start with nutrition, in your opinion, what's the optimal diet for longevity? Yeah. Well, so the the good news is that that clock will tell us if we're doing the right thing, and uh, we didn't know that until now. So what are the things to do? Uh, well, the first thing that I started to do, based on all the evidence, was to eat less often. And I have a propensity to diabetes and obesity in my family and in my genome. So I have to be extra careful. If I didn't watch what I ate, I would be probably uh, over 200, 200 something pounds. You were far from it. Uh, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm, what am I? I'm, I'm 135 or something. Um, but I have to work at it. And so that means I cannot eat, and I shouldn't eat, three meals a day. Um, I try to eat one meal a day if I can. Sometimes it's a bit hard with all of the work and brain activity that's going on. But yeah, that's one thing, is the three meals a day with snacks in between, never get hungry. I think that's the worst for people. It's, it's, I know it's against what your, your mother said, uh, probably. Um, and the, the old idea was that you don't want to stress out your system. You don't want to have big spikes in ups and downs in glucose because that'll stress out your pancreas and that'll lead to diabetes. But what we've learned is that, yeah, overeating is bad, but undereating is not so bad as long as you're not malnourished. You know, we're not talking about malnutrition here. We don't want particularly young uh, kids thinking that they should sure. eat too little. But we're talking about adults here who are clearly given too much food in their lives and have access to too much food. Um, which leads not just to obesity, but even those who are healthy, um, always being satisfied and never feeling hungry, it puts the body into a state of complacency. We've worked in my lab on a set of genes called the sirtuins for the last 30 years. We found them first in baker's yeast and they're in our bodies. 
These are very ancient genes that evolved to, to survive when times were tough. And we think that's why diet or healthy diets and being hungry and even exercise give us health benefits. It's why we live longer if we exercise. It's not because blood flows around the body. It's because you're turning on these ancient defenses to survive. And if we're sitting around and we're eating as, as much food as we want, uh, and we're always in a thermoneutral zone, so we're always just perfectly air-conditioned and heated throughout the year, our bodies just say, hey, great, no need to fight disease, I'm, I'm good. And so fasting, I'm going to stay there for a minute. A lot of people have different definitions of fasting, whether it's overnight or 16-8 or 18-6, or, and then people will debate, well, what... When does autophagy kick in and the power of autophagy? So let's talk, in your opinion, what, what is the optimal way to fast for longevity? Right. Well, let's get one thing clear, because there's a lot of debate about this. Uh, we don't know what's best for the average human, because there is no average human. <laughs> um, and that's why I say when, when you come to me and ask me for advice, I'll say, well, I know what works for me, because I've been doing this for sure. 15 years. Very fair point. All right. But the, let I'm not dodging the question. I think that, that what I do is good for me in part because it fits my lifestyle. But if, if I could just do whatever I wanted to, I would try to skip food for three days in a row, uh, at least once a month. Um, our friend Peter Tia does does that. Yeah. He goes for even a week, once a quarter. Now, I can't do that. I, I just find it really tough. But I think it's good because after three days, we know that a different type of autophagy kicks in to scrape the, the barrel and recycle proteins. And it's called chaperone-mediated autophagy. And Could you say that again? Chaperone. That was a mouthful. So chaperone, okay, we got that, uh, mediated autophagy. Okay, and it's, really what it means is there are proteins called chaperones that hold on to proteins and guide them where to go. And in this case, they push them into the garbage can to be recycled. Um, and that takes a lot of hunger uh, I wouldn't say starvation, but a lot of... Uh, yeah, three days is no joke. It's pretty close <laughs> to starvation, right? Uh, and so your body will say, okay, now it's time. I've run out of all my fat or uh, run out of my, certainly my liver stores. I'm going to start chewing up the protein to make energy. And that's what's going on. And that's when you get rid of the really bad misfolded proteins in the body, which accumulate, cause diseases like Alzheimer's and other things. So that's all good. And um, so I think that being able to do that would be wonderful. Um, there are other ways to do it. There's there's that drug that's fairly toxic called rapamycin that simulates low, low amino acids. Um, I haven't gone there yet because it's it's got some side effects, but it has been shown in humans to, to boost their immune system. So it, it does have some promise. The other good thing to know is that there's a clinical trial about to read out the results really soon, phase three, which means that's the final result. Um, and there might be a new drug that's safe and effective to boost this pathway, this uh, protein sensing pathway. Uh, but in the in the absence of that drug, which is still many years away for the average person, the best thing to do is to, to go hungry for three or more days. So for the average person, yeah, probably not going to happen. What's more likely is 14 hours, 16 hours, 18 hours. And in your opinion is what I know we're all unique individuals. I'm six, seven, 200 plus pounds. I'm very different from you um, and our average listener. <laughs> What and I know it's hard to generalize, but is is there sort of a minimum in your opinion to get the benefits of fasting for longevity? 
Yes. Specifically autophagy too. Yeah, there is. And and you can also look at look at um, places on earth where people live a long time. Now there are, there are plenty of places where people don't eat breakfast, but mm-hmm. they don't live a long time. Most people, not most, but a lot of people skip breakfast anyway before this whole intermittent fasting, periodic feeding uh, thing came into the mainstream. So I think it's got to be more than just skipping breakfast. So that's why I try to skip lunch too. Um, so I think if, if you can skip breakfast, do it. Um, and if you don't, then try to skip another meal, dinner perhaps, have a very early dinner or not at all. Uh, my metabolism, by the way, is, is the type where my, my blood sugar goes up as I wake mm-hmm. up and therefore I'm, I'm full with sugar and I don't need any more. And that explains why I'm not hungry in the morning. So if you're not hungry in the morning, you're probably like me. You don't need breakfast. So don't don't have it. Um, and we actually, just as an aside, we have a son, uh, Benjamin, who has my metabolism. And my wife, uh, as all parents, thought it was essential that he goes to school with a full stomach so he can concentrate. Um, and he developed obesity as a, as a result. So he gets a tiny breakfast now. But that's an, a consequence of our genetics. But yeah, anyway, the, the point being, more you can skip the better. Uh, and I don't think breakfast is enough. Got it. So you're, I'd say, six, from what I'm, 16, 18 at the minimum, yeah. if you go longer, go yeah. longer. So with regards to diet, so what how, what do I eat? So we've established yeah. the, what we're, when we're not eating, how often, you know, but during the eating window, what is mm-hmm. what is the optimal diet, in your opinion? How do you eat? Yeah. Well, so I've always been of the opinion that you can learn from other cultures. Uh, and we, we know that what we eat in the U.S., or at least served up when you're at airports, uh, is the worst you can. It feels good. It tastes good. But that doesn't mean it's good for you. In fact, it's similar to the the point that you have to get your body out of a state of complacency. If you're eating a lot of sugar and fat, uh, you're, you've got complacency in your, your mind and your body just says, thanks for that, I'm not going to try hard. So how do you trick your body into feeling like times are about to be tough? Uh, so one way is to have fewer calories in general. So the best way I've found to do that is not to eat high caloric food, which is for me is a very tasty vegetarian meal and uh, and salads and actually i think many of the listeners will know that once you get used to that the idea of eating a, a giant steak fatty steak is is not that appealing occasionally i'll still eat meat um in part because it's it's often the only only thing you can eat on a menu and and i don't mind some social social life uh, but i also exercise and if i'm exercising a bit of meat i think it's not going to hurt me but generally i try to be more of a uh a guinea pig than a than a lion. I look for particularly uh, plants that are highly colored, deep colored plants, and you might ask why that would be. Well, I'm curious why and what. What? Well, so uh, things like um, so leafy vegetables that are really deep green or deep red, and uh, those are particularly the good ones. And I also look for or- organic foods, not because I'm scared as much of the pesticides, though that's important, it's because organic foods aren't held with, you know, with gloves. They're, they're mm-hmm. a little bit more stressed out usually. And the more stressed out your food is, first of all, the brighter colors they'll have because they're producing these colors as a defense. And those colors are actually an indicator 
of other molecules that plants produce to try and survive when they're stressed. We call these xenor, xenohormetic molecules. Now that's a mouthful, so I'll break it down. Xeno just means between species, and hormesis, hormetic, means what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> and you're getting the theme here, right? We need to trick our bodies into thinking that times are tough, even though we live in utopia compared to our ancestors. And so the, the plant molecules that are produced, such as, I could list a bunch of them. So resveratrol comes on, quercetin, butene, um, so the, the green tea and turmeric and curcumin. We've all heard about this, but has anyone ever really thought, why are they so helpful? How come they tweak the right pathways in the body in just the right way? And my best explanation is that we have evolved to sense when our plants are running out of uh, their own food or their own water. And that's important because you've got to know when you're going to run out of food and get ready for that. And that puts your body in a state of defense. And we can trick our bodies into thinking we're running out of food, even though we can always just go down to the supermarket, by eating foods that have been stressed themselves. And those chemicals, like resveratrol, which we've studied for decades, um, turns on those sirtuin defenses, mimicking exercise, mimicking fasting, without actually having to do those things. Though, I'll, before you ask me, I know you can ask me, it's not an excuse to take these molecules in high doses and not lead a healthy lifestyle because when we add them together, what we see, at least in the lab, is that they are doubly beneficial when done together. Right. So if you had to put together your list of Dr. David Sinclair's superfoods, walking into Whole Foods, what, what what's on that? Is it... Broccoli, I'm, I'm just guessing. You're, you're yeah. Like, what are your what are your top five superfoods? Everyone's got to get out their pen and paper, put their note. This is what I must I must eat. All right. All right. Well, the first thing I, I do is not in the supermarket. It's a yogurt farmers market. <laughs> farmers market. Thank you. Um, yeah. So the the first thing is I actually order online sachets of of a yogurt that I make religiously. And it lasts for about three to four weeks in the fridge. So it's not it's not a lot of work. It takes me five minutes. And I'm going to, I have a newsletter uh, on my website that I'm going to put out the recipe. But it's wonderful. And I haven't been sick since I started two years ago taking this stuff. You've got to share a little bit. What's in the yogurt? I'm dying to know. Well, there's a, a blend of <laughs> about 15 different bacteria that are normally in the human gut in s small amounts. And the doctor that makes this says that they're highly anti-inflammatory. And I was skeptical and I, I bought this stuff for my son who I thought maybe we could reduce his obesity issue uh, and we all we both started taking eating it and found we were transformed in terms of our health wow. including not getting sick anymore so it's it's you know not a clinical trial again but I used to get sick every few weeks because I fly a lot. Sure. We'll talk about flying later. Yeah. you got to get this yogurt on the market. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it is on the market. I have no connection to it, so I think I'm free to, t to say what it is. Do you mind? Sure. Um, it, on, if you just um, type into your browser, uh, Bravo Yogurt. Bravo Yogurt. Bravo Yogurt. And uh, I'll put out the full recipe, but essentially you don't need to follow their recipe. There's a quick and easy way to do it. Um, they suggest boiling the milk and sterilizing everything and then lowering temperature, blah, blah, blah. So I'm a microbiologist. I figured out a way to do this without apparently any risk. <laughs> a bit of hot, clean water, rinse out a, a big mason jar, about you know a bit bigger than the ones we've got here on this table, uh, mix that with whole milk, 
um, you know, if you're lactose intolerant, then I guess you could try uh, your own brand. But whole milk, uh, grass-fed, pour it in, mix it up, shake it, put it in the oven on defrost at uh, 95 degrees overnight, and then you've got two weeks worth of yogurt. Wow. And uh, it, it, it tastes like the best yogurt I can buy, or better, actually. There's, there's no sugar in it, of course. And uh, so it's, yeah, I don't like the taste of really sweet anything anymore after my diet. Anyway, so that's my first one. Let's go to the farmer's market. <laughs> I'll give everyone the full recipe later. But the um, first thing I would go for would be, uh, so a dark green leafy vegetable. Uh, so that would be, unfortunately, kale. I say unfortunately because a lot of people don't like kale. Just, for Dave, just Dave Asprey. Yeah, well, that part. <laughs> yeah. I like kale. Yeah, kale or, or anything. I think baby um, broccoli is good. All that uh, good leafy stuff. I also would do bro- Brussels sprouts. Um, I would avoid grapes, actually. Uh, grapes, uh, so Rhonda Patrick and I agree that grapes are overrated. <laughs> uh, there's huge amounts of sugar, and mm-hmm. you, you eat one, and you can see, actually, if you monitor your blood like we do, sends it through the roof so that's just one thing i'd walk past and then the next aisle so we've got two three items already i think um if you include the yogurt then then i would go and i'd get i get fruit um I, i'm not averse to fruit it's a nice snack in between if i need it so i'm pretty good on on apples but i don't go for a really sugar laden fruit you know i don't like want banana. really sweet um banana i think things like um oranges uh, stink. You know, they, they're fine with the, the pulp, but still, I, I'd rather keep, I'd save my glucose intake for something that is really, really great. The other thing that I notice actually on this diet and having monitored myself is food's special now. It's a treat. And so if I stick something in my mouth that isn't great, uh, I've been known to go spit it out. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. religiously and it, it, not at a restaurant, but if it tastes like crap, I'm not going to swallow it because that's that's something else I can't eat later. Sure, it's a good way. You know, I don't eat a lot of meat anymore, and when I do, it's going to be a damn good piece of meat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not going to do it. It's like I don't want a burger just for a burger. Whatever. Like I'm going to do it. It's going to be amazing. I'm do it once a quarter or whatever. I don't. Yeah. So I I, I also eat um, beans and things. Um, I'm not You're okay with the lectins. I'm not sure what about <laughs> about Dr. Gundry's uh, <laughs> thing. I have to be convinced about that. Okay, that's good. So you're okay with beans too? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm a little bit more cautious now that uh, I've read his book, um, but I've been eating that stuff my whole life. I think people struggle bit... with autoimmune and can have issues, but if you, you yeah. you'd know if there was a problem. Mm-hmm. That's my take, at least. Mm-hmm. My 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 uh, my. <laughs> I don't I don't have a medical opinion, but that's my personal opinion. Well, it's all personal. Here's the thing that. Like you say, what what works for someone's microbiome and, and physiology and immune system might not work for another. And so you, you can feel what works for you and you can monitor uh, not just how you feel and how how many times you get sick, but you, if you want, you can do a blood test at one of these companies. Sure. But also you, what you can do is um, uh, you can measure things like blood sugar and see that it's working or it isn't. The other thing uh, that's important is that um, it's taken me about 15 years to, to optimize things for myself. Wow. Okay, it's not just, I'll just switch to one diet and hope that it works. 
And that's often um, misunderstood because my colleagues uh, who are scientists, they say, well, you know, David's doing this, doing that. How does he know anything? This is, you know, they say an N of one. N of one, that's the criticism. <laughs> well, it's an N of one, but, you know, over 15 years, every day, you, you do learn a lot and you can repeat the experiment over and over again. Give you a quick example. I had cacao, uh, a big, thick chocolate drink, as part of a ceremony. Uh, we, uh, I was just out in San Diego, and I drank it, and it had a bit of sugar in it, which is not going to kill me, but I expected my blood sugar levels to go up, which they did, because I've got a monitor here. Uh, but then what happened was really weird. My blood sugar went way down as I went to bed, and through the night stayed baseline, couldn't even go lower, according to the sensor. When I woke up, it came back up. I've never seen that happen. And I'm curious, if I try it again, will it happen again? Is there something in chocolate, that particular type, that that really made my in- insulin sensitivity go up, which would be great? And those are the, it's an example of the kind of experiments that I can do on my body. Well, I was going to ask you, I think, for someone who does a lot of experiments on their body, and someone, it sounds like, who also listens to their body... Do you mostly find when you when you feel good after eating something and then you look at the lab results that they're in line and vice versa when you when you feel like crap and then you look at the bloods or whatever mark you're looking at markers not good. Do you find that mostly to be true? I do. And that's been a surprise. I've only been monitoring my glucose for a couple of months now. But now I know what what it feels like to have good blood glucose and what it doesn't, and the surprising thing about it, besides grapes being bad and potatoes not being as bad as I thought, and white rice being horrendously bad. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I ate sushi for ten years, so that was a mistake. But he, but here's what I also learned: is that if I overdo it, let's say, well, maybe I'll tell you for sure. Last week, I I ate a lot of food and I drank a fair amount of alcohol. Um, regrettably, uh, I felt bad. I slept poorly. And that's to be expected. But what I didn't expect was the next three days, my metabolism was out of whack. My, I couldn't mm. get my blood sugar down. I, I, I saw it was just massively high, and I thought, this has never happened. This is weird. What I think has happened is that my liver then filled up with fat and is releasing it into my bloodstream, even though I'm hungry. And I actually felt hungry while my blood sugar was still high. So I'd really messed up my system. And I think that's how most people exist, because they're not... Uh, well, not most people, but a lot of people who eat a lot of food are still hungry, even though they've got a lot of blood sugar in their body. Um, and then it took three days to go away. The other thing that I was I was fascinated was that I jumped on a treadmill to try and get that bl- blood sugar to go down, thinking, "Wow, this is crazy! I got to get it down. Let's see what happens." So I ran on a treadmill for about ten minutes, pretty fast, and I got it to come down. As soon as I stopped running, it just went straight back up again. Huh. And so that has taught me very clearly in the past week, don't overdo it because it's not just that it's one day, your body suffers for many days after that. So two things that you mentioned I want to touch on. One is fat, specifically healthy fats, and what's your take on healthy fats? And then two, we're going to go to working out exercise yeah. high intensity interval training what does that look like well let's let's go go to fat fat is very with keto and fat and lots of different opinions what what's your take on on fat yeah i i don't think fat is is evil i just think fat is calorific and you just have to eat less of it otherwise 
you will build up um, adiposity. And adiposity is the killer, I've found, is that it's not the fat that's so bad, it's what the fat signals to the body um, in terms of inflammation and other things. And the, the fatter you are, and if, if you're a fat mouse or a fat rat, you'll you'll be suppressing the activity of your longevity genes, your sirtuins and these other genes. Um, and that's really bad. That means that you might be healthy, uh, you think you're healthy, but if you've got adiposity, a l- large amount, you know, it's healthy. I've, I've, I've got some fat on me. I'm not too skinny, but I see with my body, if it gets over a certain amount, let's say a BMI goes up to, I'm probably a BMI of 23. If I go up to 25, 26, I immediately start to see problems, um, including uh, evidence that my longevity genes are being shut down. So getting back to what to eat, though, um, I think it's fine eating fat. In fact, I used to avoid fat like the plague because of recommendations from nutritionists. Sure. In the nineties, I remember snack wells and all the. Yeah, or just eat sugar fat, instead. Low fat, low fat muffin in the yeah. morning to start your day. It's a nightmare. I, so I've, I've changed my mind, and and actually, I would love to get my childhood back to be able to eat that <laughs> stuff. But for about twenty years, I didn't eat eggs, very little milk, almost never ate milk or yogurt, thinking that any form of fat was going to hurt me. And uh, now I lead a, a wonderful life. I eat cheese and I eat yogurt, and I think I'm healthier than I ever was. But it's it, you can't eat the same quantity of cheese as you do plant food. You just gain too much weight. In terms of healthy fats, now clearly cheese is not the healthiest. Uh, healthy fats that I like are um, if I eat meat, I eat fish if I have a choice, and then uh, I take my omega threes. Mm-hmm. Um, so do I. Yeah. yeah. So do you, how do you rank your fish? Do you go by, you ever heard of smash? Salmon, mackerel, mm. anchovy, sardines, and herring? Do you uh, rank no. them accordingly? I, I try to rate them based on taste. <laughs> That's a good way to rate them. <laughs> but in terms of longevity, I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, salmon's good, I know that. Um, but uh, I, I don't break it down that finely. Okay. And in terms of your healthy fats, um, other than fish, a lot of people here love avocados, yeah. olive oil. Good by you. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. for sure. So plant fats. I'm, I'm, I always have a couple of avocados in the fridge that, or on the table. Um, now I'm trying to figure out: should I be putting it on toast? That's how I usually eat it. But maybe I don't want the, the toast. The good Australian in you, yeah. avocado toast. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so avocado, fantastic for sure. Uh, olive oil. I'm becoming more and more convinced olive oil is the thing to do. So I've always put liberal amounts on bread and on um, on on salads. But there's more and more evidence that just taking a spoonful of the stuff is good for you. And uh, it was Dave Asprey who put me on. No, no, it wasn't. It was Gundry. Gundry loves olive oil. Gundry was the one who was saying it's got 10,000 times whatever. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. And some of my colleagues are also uh, real devotees of the olive oil. Which is great. It's one of those foods that not only tastes good, is good for you. Well, he'll joke, I'll have a side of bread with the olive oil. Yeah. When he has his bread. It's, it's, Just suck on the bread. It's a condiment. Yeah. Um, so let's go, I'm going to go back to, to exercise. It sounds like you're a fan of high-intensity interval training. Hit. Um, I'm a big fan. Um, it's mostly a spectator sport, unfortunately. <laughs> For me, um, I would love to do more. I'm mostly on airplanes or in, behind a computer. Um, so I only once a week do I 
always do high intensity exercise. It's terrible. It should be three times a week at least. Occasionally I'll go to our home gym, but usually I'm just knackered. Um, so I'd, I go, because it's only once a week, I spend three hours in the gym. I remember you said that on Rogan. He was like, mm. what are you doing? <laughs> for three hours? <laughs> Making up for the rest of the week. So we spend an hour. So my son and I do this, and it's the best thing. I, I probably wouldn't do it as much if it wasn't for my son being there. Um, I took him to the gym for his benefit. It's turned out to be the best thing we've ever done as a family. But So we spend an hour with a trainer who really works us hard. Uh, we were doing deadlifts. and uh, Wow. Yeah, my son is in the top 1% for his age now. Cause wow, how old is he? He's 12. Okay. That's he's impressive. 12-year-old doing deadlifts? Almost as much as me. Yeah. Wow. Uh, he's very proud of that. And then, um, then we do you know, a lot of muscle strength training and then a lot of stretching. And then we do boxing. And uh, he's getting to the point where, where he can actually cause some damage on, on me, to me. Uh, and he recently got his, his own set of boxing gloves. So he's very happy about that. So that's, all, that's fairly aerobic if you do that right. And then we'll do some treadmill and some stairmaster and some stretching. And then we, do, then we go, that's, that's about an hour and a half to two hours. Then we go downstairs to our the steam room, the sauna and the hot tub and then the cold bath. And we cycle through those for an hour. And uh, I hate getting cold. I'm from Australia. I hate the Boston winters. Uh, but my son grew up in New England, so he he's uh, up to 15 minutes in the cold bath. Wow! Every time he's breaking his record, um, whereas a minute for me is is painful. But anyway, what I I believe is that the sirtuin genes are activated by cold, and probably by heat. We don't know for sure, but there's enough evidence from both of these that. If you look at groups of people who do these things, they tend to be protected against heart disease, among some other things. Now, you can argue all day that that's just an, a correlation and that people go to the sauna are probably not the same ones who are in hospital. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, but at a minimum, I'm feeling pretty good. And we know that in mice, if you make them cold, they develop what's called brown fat. And we have brown fat, we've discovered the last 15 years. And brown fat's very good for us. It burns energy and it puts out uh, these proteins that help the rest of the body. So for someone who also hates the cold, and I'll try anything. I, I am not, I think the last time I did like an ice bath was in college for basketball. Like, and that was it. I swear, once I'm done, I'm done. Like, what's the bare minimum for someone to get the health benefit of going from extraordinarily cold to heat and back and forth? can't do the hour or 15 minutes yeah. like what's the bare minimum if, if i'm at home and i got the shower what yeah. can i do well it's a guess because no one studied it um so what i what i'm thinking scientifically is the shock is the biggest part always with this hormesis effect it's you want the shock get your body out of that state so that's why i think for a minute up to my neck is is enough okay once your body starts to get used to it the effect's gone, right? So that's with most things. Um, that's why don't eat all the time, and you don't want to always be running all the time either. You need to recover, and then you hit your body again and cycle it that way. So a minute, minute cold, then hot, then change it. Well, I love what you said, because I, I, I found personally everything works until it doesn't, to some degree. And it's listed. <laughs> well, yeah. The other thing about it is... So we know what's going to happen to us if we don't do anything, okay? We've seen what that happens. All of our ancestors who didn't look after themselves, it's not pretty. 
and men in my family don't live beyond about 70. Uh, so like you say, it, if it doesn't work, uh, I'm not going to cry. It's a lot of fun. I feel great. I'm with my son. Um, a minute of cold is really, you know, it gives me a little bit more mental strength as well. I, just, I need that. And uh, at, the, at best, I'm going to give myself another 10, 20 years of healthy life. So that's a calculation that I think is pretty easy to do. And with regards to exercise, it seems like a, there, there's a lot of interesting research lately that less is more with regards to interval training. Exactly. Yeah. So in my book, I've got a fair amount of um, references. Yes. It's like you, half the book. If I remember I got the book, I'm like, all the footnotes in here. Wow. Yeah. I had to hire somebody just to, to format the footnotes. <laughs> But I'm a scientist, so everything that I say is backed up by science. It had to be. This isn't a self-help, made-up book. Um, it's it's really as, as scientifically valid as I could make it. But in, in the book, I talk about um, what you were saying, which is that we used to think you had to be a marathon runner to, mm -hmm. to live a long time. That's actually not true. You, you can actually wear out your body parts from sport. You probably have some friends who are yes. feeling it already. Uh, so you want to be able to get the maximum bang for the buck and what we're finding we scientists is that just 10 minutes on a treadmill as long as you lose your breath you become hypoxic that means that you're you're unable to carry out a conversation during this when if you do that for 10 minutes a few times a week that seems to be nearly as good as pro athletes so yeah a little bit goes a long way when it comes to exercise but you've got to push yourself you can't just uh, you know, walk up a flight of stairs and think you're done for the week. Run up, run up like five flights. Right. Still, walking is good. If, you, if you're elderly and you can't run, clearly walking helps. A lot of people who are in, you know, in their hundreds didn't run a day in their lives, and but they did walk a lot. But you got to keep moving. What about sleep? Wow, sleep is really, really important. More than I thought. Which I wish we all knew this when we were in our twenties. And, uh, I feel you're, like I you're slept a, a lot kid. then, but we have a five-month-old, and you came from a red eye. Talking to two yeah. guys who didn't sleep last night. <laughs> yeah, we should practice what we preach. Um, but I do try more than I used to. I, especially as I get older, it's harder to recover from a night like that on an airplane. And again, this, this biofeedback really helps me because it makes you more aware of what's going on. And so that's why I've got this ring on my finger, which is used by now many people to monitor their sleep. Not just when they sleep, but how well they sleep. And I learn what causes me not to sleep well. Of course, being on a plane doesn't help. But even if I'm at home in my bed, if I have a drink late at night or two, messes up my sleep and I'll feel it the next day. Uh, a large meal, a big steak late at night, eight yeah. o'clock, nine o'clock, won't sleep. <clears throat> and I used to wonder why I would feel up, I wake up feeling bad. And now I've figured out it's, it's the sleep disruption. And so you mentioned planes. You are not a fan. We have to, and you're not a fan of TSA either, but for different reasons than most of us. Yeah. Uh, well, so what, what I've discovered in, in our lab is that one of the drivers of aging, we think, and again, this isn't brand new. We've been doing this for now at least 20 years, but it is new to most scientists and the public, is that aging is driven by this clock that I mentioned. And this clock is what's called the epigenome, which at a very high level, you can think of the epigenome as scratches on a, on a CD or a DVD. And the digital information is the genome. And we what scratches the, 
CD is uh, largely it's broken DNA because the cell has to reorganize all of your genes to deal with the broken DNA. And even when it's put back together, it doesn't fully reorganize itself the way it was, you know, 10 minutes before. And if you keep doing that over a lifetime, you lose the ability to read the right genes at the right time. And your cells, we think, lose their identity. Uh, so with that said, and also I should say that uh, long-lived species have very good capability of repairing broken chromosomes. And proteins that, or genes that help DNA repair, uh, if you put them into animals, they live longer. There's one called SIR-T6, which is one of those sirtuins that we work on. You can make a mouse live longer if you give it better DNA repair. All that to say, uh, avoid DNA breaks as best you can, because I think that's one of the main drivers of aging. Now, you can break your DNA by going out in the sun. We know that any kid who grew up in Australia, myself being one of them, uh, will look older because... Well, part of it's the ozone layer there is, right? Uh, yeah, ozone and, uh, and the culture. Um, you know, I grew up in the 80s when having a tan was... If you didn't have a tan, people wouldn't talk to you. <laughs> You're a loser. So you had to get brown. And we used to just sit out there with oil on our skin cooking. <laughs> and our faces would peel. It was horrible, especially our backs. But yeah. Um, so here's the thing. I try to avoid the sun. Occasionally, as long as I don't overwhelm my skin, I'm happy to sit in the sun for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It feels great and it's good for vitamin D. But beyond that, you don't want to overwhelm the system because then you get this aging effect. Uh, there are other ways to break chromosomes. There, there are toxins in the, in the environment. Uh, so PCBs will do it. Microwave food and plastics will do it. Even the yellow ink in a, an inkjet jet printer will do it. That's surprisingly toxic, I, I found. And then speaking about the TSA, the original scanners that they had at the airport did break DNA, and it was they were quite penetrating. Uh, and they first banned them in Europe, and for about a year or two, uh, I knew that. Most people didn't. And I, I would say to the people in the US, do you know that these are banned in Europe because they're dangerous? <laughs> and they'd say, oh, shut up and uh, go through it. And they would force me to go through it. And I would say, no, give me a pat down. Anyway, long story short, that they've improved them somewhat, but I'm still aware of the dangers of even low-dose radiation. And these mice that we've aged in the lab by 50%, we don't trash their genomes. We just cut them very precisely a little bit stop it after three weeks and 10 months later they look really old compared to their brothers and sisters so you don't need a lot of dna damage to accelerate this aging clock uh, which tells me avoid radiation um, unless you actually have to so an x-ray or chemotherapy these are ways to break your dna but you you need those right if your doctor says do that you you listen to them as you should but these avoidable ones i think we should study those more i would love to see a, a group of animals that have been exposed to those scanners not just for cancer that's just one thing that can happen from broken dna but go for two years and see what happens to them do they get older or not by messing up not the dna but not the genome but the epigenome which is the organization of the dna so you mentioned sirtuins. I want to come back to NAD and for our audience, it's something we've talked about here before, but as a primer, what is it? Why should we be paying attention to it? To sirtuins? NAD. NAD. Yeah. Well, so sirtuins are, think of them as the protective enzymes of the body. Uh, they, if you 
we think in upstream downstream mode so downstream of them what are they doing they're repairing dna as i mentioned they're stabilizing the epigenome so they're packaging the dna and making sure it stays in a youthful package um, but they have to jump between dna repair and packaging this is their job they have two two jobs and over time they lose their position similar to if there's another hurricane katrina the army corps of engineers will go down fix it but some of them won't ever come back or they're distracted by something else some other disaster and we think that's what the sirtuins are doing they're moving back and forth between these two activities what's good about them is that they sense the environment and the way they do that is they measure how much nad is in the cell so nad is the world's most boring molecule it uh, if anyone who remembers biology from high school will remember nad is used by enzymes to carry out reactions about 500 different ones in the cell and then they made us learn those damn reactions. Remember the Krebs cycle or TCA cycle and all that stuff? You probably don't. You put it out of your memory. But <laughs> but that's that that's what NAD does. And it was it, it was considered the most boring molecule up until the 2000s when it was discovered that these sirtuins are sensing the amount of NAD in the cell and protecting us. And then we realized that NAD, even though it's a very important chemical, which you might think, therefore, you don't want to change the levels. Always, we, sh we need the same level of NAD. Turns out a few things happen. NAD cycles throughout the day. So when you wake up in the morning, you're getting more NAD, getting ready for the day. Um, and it's cycling. It's, a, it's responsible for our sleep-wake cycles, which is one of the reasons why sleep is so important. You want to make sure that it's all in sync. By the way, if you disrupt sleep cycles, you get aging. That's <laughs> not in animals. Uh, so sirtuins control that, NAD is cycling. But the other thing that's now known is that we lose NAD over time as we get older. Not so much in our blood, but in our tissues, it goes down by about half between the ages of 20 and 50. If you just say, if you take a skin sample, which is really scary because NAD is essential for life. Uh, you're dead at zero. You're definitely dead at zero. <laughs> uh, if, if, you, if we stop making NAD, we would definitely be dead within about 10 seconds it's like taking cyanide in fact that's what cyanide does it blocks the ability to make nad and energy so nad is important and you don't want to have half the levels for two reasons right you're not going to have enough energy to make these chemical reactions go but even more important these sirtuins will be weak and not active and not repairing dna and stabilizing the epigenome so the scratches on the cd get faster and more and more and more. It's basically rubbing sandpaper on there, and eventually the reader of the CD is playing a cacophony or, or rejecting the CD, which is what we think is aging. And so what can we do to increase NAD? Well, we know you can exercise and you can be hungry. Okay? That's why those <laughs> things work, we think. All right? so that, I love it. That's Good place to start. That's what um, in my book is, it's not just how to live, but why it works, which is important because it helps you tweak your own body. Uh, other ways to raise NAD would be, uh, so metformin will raise NAD. The, the, his, take a little step back. There are three main categories of longevity genes. There's the sirtuins that I work on. There are seven of those. There's a one that's usually put in the middle called AMPK or AMP kinase, which senses energy in the cell, low energy it turns on, which is good. And then the third one senses amino acids. And if you have a lot of branch chain amino acids, which are found a lot in meat, uh, it will not be as helpful. Um, it's one of the reasons why 
I like to sometimes keep my amino acid intake low to try and get that pathway going. That's the pathway that'll stimulate that autophagy that we talked about mm-hmm. earlier. Um, so NAD and all of these pathways are talking to each other. That's my point. And we used to fight as scientists over whose pathway was more important. It was pathetic. Uh, you know, sirtuins are the best. No, mTOR is the best. No, we don't. Turns out, if you tweak mTOR, you'll affect the other two, or vice versa. So you can, if you tweak the others, NAD will go up, and if you tweak NAD, the others will will go. But what we don't understand, which is a little confusing, especially for the public um, and also scientists, is what's the best way to tweak those three main things? In what order? When? How? We don't know that yet. We've just figured out that they talk to each other, but the optimum isn't known. And what's interesting is about is people like myself and thousands of other people now are trying out their various versions of diets and exercise, when to eat, what to eat, to try and optimize that longevity pathway. And together we're figuring this out. And clinical trials are underway, but in a clinical trial you can only change one thing at a time. Right. And they cost about $15 million to, to complete. So it's going to take the rest of our lives to figure this out the traditional way, um, or we can try a few things and see what we can learn, which is what I've done in parallel. Um, but So you can also boost NAD artificially if you want. Uh, there are molecules that we make in our bodies that are safe enough, we think, to take as a supplement. So NR, and then we've talked about people are experimenting with injections and NAD NAD injections but not there and NMN but it's like it's exciting there are lots of things we're trying out right now that can potentially increase NAD and tied to longevity and it's it's interesting exciting well it's it it is exciting and uh, so far there's been no downside that this is the right. the potential yeah. risk here is that we've got 100,000 people or more trying this out and you know, God forbid that there's some downside, right? We don't know of what what that is yet, and right. I want to be the first to know. Um, and I'll tell the world if we find something. Don't worry about that. I'm not <laughs> going to hide anything because uh, my whole family is now taking and the NAD booster called NMN. Yeah, yeah, not to be confused with MMs. <laughs> uh, but yeah, my father, my wife, even our dogs, um, not our kids, by the way. We we don't think it's worth the risk. Uh, and besides, young people make a lot of NED anyway, so right. there's no need probably. But yeah, we want to know what the toxicity is. There doesn't seem to be any. I will tell you that unpublished data, uh, we've been doing clinical trials with molecules like NMN and uh, trying to develop drugs for diseases like uh, Friedrich's ataxia, which is a energy uh, deficient disease. People end up in wheelchairs midlife. Uh, those studies look good. We can raise NAD right. effectively with an oral pill. Um, it's not sublingual, it's just a pill swallowed. We don't need injections. It works just as a pill. But um, So that, that whole debate, I'm not right. jumping into because right. I think there's a lot of not disinterested parties involved. Sure. Um, can I just say that uh, if anyone looks at, on the internet, they'll see pretty much every company has my name and quotes from me on their website trying <laughs> to say, don't believe them, this is Sinclair's stuff. Trust me, he works with us. I don't work with any of them. Okay. I barely even look at their websites. First of all, I just get too too upset when I look at them. <laughs> just like we were talking about all the people who have your who have lifespan on Amazon, who aren't you? <laughs> they're they're ripping off my book too. Yeah, I guess it's popular sign of success. But it's uh, but NED is 
is really interesting. Uh, we don't think there's any issues with it. There are a lot of supplements out there. I have a newsletter where I talk about what to look for. Sure. So that that's how I'm helping. But I have to be very careful because if I start being biased or jump into the supplement world or I start selling something, sure. then nobody I can should only, believe what I say. I can only imagine. Uh, so, so with regards to longevity, where do you think the conversation is going to be a year from now, three years? You know, Dave Asprey said he's going to live, he wants to live to 180 and he'll go through his reasons. Like, what, what do you think is attainable for people today and what's mm -hmm. going to be attainable for our children? Yeah. Well, so in, in my book, Lifespan, I, I paint the pictures of what the future looks like uh, in the very near future and, and far future and what that means for the world, good and bad. And so if you want a view of that, it's in there. What I think is going to happen, and I'm right on the cutting edge, I, I see things that most people don't sometimes years ahead. So consider that. What I see coming is that there are drugs that are in development that could be on the market within the next year or two that look like they would slow down aging. The problem is that aging isn't a disease, at least based on the regul regulatory authorities anywhere in the world. Uh, that may change in the next 10 years too. There's a lot of push from uh, grassroots as well as from the top down. So that's probably, one country starts doing it, everyone's going to follow because it's going to be great for that country. And f something like metformin is only a couple of cents a pill, so it's not going to bankrupt a nation trying to prevent diseases like heart disease and cancer. Mm -hmm. So I think within 10 years, you'll you'll have a blood test. You'll have your biological age identified. If you're above a certain age, let's say it's 50, you can be prescribed metformin and some of these other things, um, and that'll be quite acceptable, just the same way we now have cholesterol drugs mm -hmm. to prevent something. Once you know it's safe enough and it's cheap enough, then things become adopted. And I think it'll be quite normal in, in 10 years for people to be working on slowing their aging, whereas now it feels weird because we think of aging as something that's acceptable. But increasingly, and I think anyone who reads my book will come to hopefully the, the same conclusion I have, which is we are kidding ourselves if this is something that we should accept. Right. Um, not just because it'll help the healthcare system, but because what we're doing right now is knocking individual diseases on the head and we're playing whack-a-mole. And even if we could stop all cancer today, we're only going to live on average an extra two years because all the other problems with aging come along right up behind there. And so if we're going to have a meaningful impact on our lives, we have to start early, watch what we eat, when we eat, exercise. If you do supplements, you know, I think that that's going to augment that. We know in animals, at least if you take resveratrol, which is one of the other things that mm -hmm. my family and I take, from red wine. If you combine that with every other day feeding in mice, you get the longest lived mouse in the experiment. So, if, so you're a fan of red wine? Uh, I am, just not late and in abundance. Uh, red, <laughs> red wine, yeah, it's full of a lot of these xenohermetic molecules yeah. I was talking about. Because the grapes are picked when they're stressed. They're either covered in fungus or they're dehydrated. So people figured out that's what makes a, a wine taste good. What they didn't realize was that that also boosts these molecules that give our body that that extra boost for longevity. So as we're on the subject of potentially healthy, unhealthy vices, red wine, good. Anything else on there? Oh, vices. Well, snacking at night is something I'd love to stop doing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm trying not to eat, but when uh, all of the family's in bed and I've, I've just got work on my mind, it's comfort food for me. Not every night. Sometimes I'm good, but 
it's so bad that I've thought about locking up the cupboards. What, what's the, the what's the, the comfort food that gets you? The demon comes out. Anything salty, uh, nuts. Uh, hopefully not chips. Nuts are good. Not Healthy not that fats. many. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll just eat like a maniac. Uh, it's a it's a real disorder that I have. Um, but it's it definitely stress. When I'm feeling good and I'm, everything's going well, I don't feel the need for it. Let's close with stress. That's a good place to. You know, we're we're talking about we, we we've covered everything. We've covered nutrition, NAD, <laughs> metformin. Let's close with stress. Something that I think every everyone can relate to, and stress and the toll it takes on one's life. Yeah, well, there's two types of stress. The stress that I talk about is biological stress, which is not the same as psychological. Biological stress is good as yeah. long as it doesn't hurt you too badly. You recover and you're more resilient. Psychological stress, though, is not good. To a certain amount, you know, a bit of adrenaline's not going to hurt you. In fact, it's probably beneficial. I've spent most of my life with adrenaline every day, doing things that are out of my comfort zone. But chronic stress, you you do that to a mouse and it'll age fast. You just see that happen. Anyone who's had a fish tank, the, the small one in the tank is is not doing too well. Same, same for us. We get cortisol. We get a whole bunch mm-hmm. of immune defects. And... Uh, so you want to avoid stress. So how do you do that? It act, it's really hard, actually. It's taken me about the first 40 years of my life to figure out what works for me. Uh, I'll make it a little bit personal because it, it's, uh, some people might be like me. I'm, I'm a fidgeter. I'm a warrior. I'm a perfectionist. And so every day I'm saying, David, you're an idiot. Why did you say that? Why did you do that? How can I get better, get better, get better? And that's very stressful when you put that on yourself. So I've learned to not take it all so seriously. I have reminders, um, including this wristband here. I have a, a gift from a Maasai tribe uh, in Africa we, we visited this year that what I worry about isn't really that problematic. Um, it also helped that I watched my mother die, and it sounds terrible, but that taught me what a bad day really looks like, mm. and everything else doesn't matter. Sure. So I used to go home and complain to my wife, ah, oh, you wouldn't believe it, so-and-so is fighting, someone said this. Uh, and now I get home and I say, it was a great day, nobody died. Right. I literally say that just about every day I get home. Uh, and if you live like that, then the stress goes away because you realize uh, what we worry about, is, these are really small things. Now, I've been fortunate that I've gotten to my career where I'm in a good place and I'm, I'm not worried about f- putting food on the table not everybody's at that stage. Um, but I do think we over-worry about things. We're looking at Instagram and what have people posted and all that stuff. That's really silly stuff to worry about. So try to do meditation if it works for you. Yoga is good, uh, I found for me. Uh, and yoga, I don't know if anyone else feels this, but when they say breathe and, and detense your body, un- uh-huh. get untense, I, I didn't, didn't realize how tense... I am until somebody says, oh, relax. You go, wow, I have really been tense every part of my body. So that, that really helps. But I think just take the long view. Take the, realize that we're all here for a short time. Realize that problems go away. And the other thing I've realized is everything that you think is going to be super fantastic never turns out to be that good. Mm. And everything you think is, is really, really bad never turns out to be that bad. And if you remember that, it's also... Uh, less stressful. Amen to that. 
David Sinclair, thank you so much. Everyone, check out his new book, Life's Bad, a must-read. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.